I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Friday, May 7th, 2021. Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton to bring you all the latest Formula One news yet again in the first of a back-to-back race weekend, the first of many double and triple headers to come this year. So we're well and truly into the thick of it. And we've got a lot of good things to talk about on the show tonight, Mark, but our mailbag is literally bursting at the seams. You know, we, we put that call to action out every week. Send us an email, send us a tweet, and boy, did you guys respond tonight. So we're going to talk about a lot of the messages that you uh, you guys have sent in over the past uh, seven days or actually shorter than that uh, considering we had uh, a race last weekend to talk about but Mark the one thing that I'm really really impressed by is uh, the the quality and the nuanced and specific questions that people have been sending into us that uh, are you know are, are admittedly gen DTS fans that have only really been following Formula One for a couple of months and only really have three races under their belts and they have a lot to do with things like the track limits and uh, the you know the cost cap and all sorts of really really technical questions and I'm really impressed at uh, at the knowledge that, that that people are showing so far and I'm really also a little bit kind of worried because as awesome as it is to see all this new enthusiasm, all these new fans in Formula One and, and following the sport so closely, uh, I'm, like I say, I'm, I'm worried is that uh, because there are all these weird things, I, I'm a little bit concerned that maybe if it gets to, to become too much of a thing, that they might start turning off fans at some point uh, if it gets a little bit uh, too inconsistent or a little bit too weird or, heaven forbid, looks like they're they're favoring one team or another. But we'll get into that. But it is it is really, um, it, it's actually very interesting uh, to see. But my friend, you look like you're ready for the weekend. You look like you got that, that weekend mood already. Yeah, and I apologize. I, I promised in the past not to wear F1 branded merch on the show. I think it's a bad look. Optically, <laughs> it's not It's not great. I'm not even a big hat guy, but I, I have a, a, a particularly cool hair kind of cut right now, but it requires an, a mountain of product. And by 9 p.m. at night, when we typically record these shows, it's totally disheveled and I don't have time to shower. So this is really to disguise the mess that is my hair right now. But just to, <laughs> just to add on to something that you were just commenting on a second ago, because I, I don't want to I don't want to lose my, my train of thought on this, but you'd made a comment about the fact that F1's in a great place right now because there's this huge injection of new fans as a byproduct of DTS. And I remember specifically last year having a conversation with Tim Haraney, who's the on-air host for Formula One on the TSN network in Canada, basically Canada's equivalent of ESPN. And he'd made a comment that F1 risks alienating these fans, not even necessarily because of some of the oddities or the irregularities regarding kind of the regulation of the sport. But his bigger concern was like, if these folks come in and all they've known is that for the last decade, Lewis Hamilton's dominated and all they see for the next three years is Lewis Hamilton dominate. That's not good. And that could be a turnoff as well. So I think you're right in the sense that these fans are, they're hungry. I I think they're they're consumed by the sport, but I, I hope as well that some of these things like track limits and irregularities and the questions about pay drivers, I hope those things don't necessarily deter them because I think the products, 
heading in a really, really great place. I mean, ultimately, the last six or seven years hasn't been a great product in terms of entertainment value, unless you're a Lewis Hamilton or Mercedes fan. But but to answer your original question, I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm definitely uh, excited for uh, for the weekend. I was ready for this weekend last time, last weekend to end it. So <laughs> let's just put it that way. But before we open up the, the mailbag, there's a couple of stories floating out there this week that really caught my eye. And the number one story out there is last week we were talking about how uh, Red Bull has signed one of Mercedes' top engine designers. He's coming over to join the team and help head up their new engine program. But this week, they've announced five more defectors from Mercedes going to join Red Bull. And this is absolutely uh, stunning. I I mean, I'm not surprised that maybe some would uh, relish that challenge of trying to do the same thing at Red Bull that they did at Mercedes. And I don't think by any uh, stretch of the imagination that Mercedes is a bad place to work at. I think it's quite uh, the opposite, or at least that's what their uh, Mercedes propaganda would have you believe if you ever see any of their social media posts. But, you know, th- that aside, that is a substantial a number of very senior engineers and designers to go from one team to a competing team in such a short amount of time. I- I'm really quite stunned by that. I'm I'm beyond shocked. And I wasn't surprised last week when we, and I don't even know that it was necessarily a defection, right? Uh, Red Bull claims that they posted a job opening and that somebody from the Mercedes team uh, elected to apply and they went through the interviewing process and they accepted a position. But for this week, there to be five. And these aren't junior analyst, junior engineer, intern level positions. These are very, very, very key architects within the power unit development uh, category at at Bricksworth in in Merce- for the Mercedes team. Like if you look at the folks that have joined the Red Bull team as a byproduct of this purge, and again, I think we can speculate a little bit about what's driving this. But ultimately, Red Bull now has a group leader of internal combustion engine operations, a head of power unit design for ICE, a head of mechanical design for ERS, a head of powertrain electronics in ERS, a PU production director. They they really pulled the brain trust out of that Bricksworth facility that has been fueling Mercedes for the last decade, and they. Brought Brought them over to Milton Keynes to work on their new engine. Again, this team isn't really going to be coming to work on necessarily existing motor. They're really being tasked with developing whatever that engine is, whatever that power unit formula is going to be for 2025. But I thought this was pretty alarming, to be totally honest. And I'm not necessarily sure what's driving it other than potentially money. I know that Helmut Marco had made a comment a couple of days ago about the fact that uh, some of these folks have face some resistance from Mercedes. And he quotes, and I don't know how much truth there is, that Mercedes has been trying to entice some of these folks to remain with Mercedes, in some cases offering, quote, double the salary to stay with that team. But I find it fairly shocking. The the other consideration too is, and this is just kind of being from a speculation perspective, obviously with the cost cap, some of these teams may honestly just be in a position where they can't afford to keep their current FTE, their current headcount. Some of these folks may not have had an opportunity or some of these folks could have been in a position where they've been looking for personal development opportunities in terms of a career path. And maybe those didn't necessarily exist at Mercedes and maybe Red Bull just presented career opportunities that they weren't necessarily going to have there. But to me, that's that's six key personnel from Mercedes power unit development core in the last seven days. Pretty shocking. Yeah, absolutely. I love the understated comment from Christian Horner, the team principal at Red Bull. And he had to say, quote, today's key leadership team appointments demonstrate our strong commitment to those goals. And we certainly benefit from our campus being located 
located in the UK where we have access to a huge wealth of engineering talent, end quote. I mean, he's just sort of addressing it as a, you know, a country where there's a lot of this sort of knowledge in general, but I think that's kind of Christian sort of diluting that message and maybe kind of obscuring it with a bit of smoke, but uh, certainly I'm I'm just just stunned that they've been able yeah. to like lure such, you know, high level people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we I think we talked about this a little bit last week as well, but to give everyone a little bit of perspective, Silverstone and the two Mercedes factories. So they have uh, the power unit production is in Bricksworth. Um, they have the car, the chassis development about 20 minutes away from there. And then Milton Keynes is about 40 minutes from there. So all of these bases are within an hour of each other. So for these folks that are actually moving from Mercedes to Red Bull, they don't have to pack up and move because they already live in that neighborhood. In fact, it's speculated that a lot of these folks that have made the transition to Red Bull already live in Milton Keynes, which is where the new integrated uh, Red Bull factory is. So Red Bull is kind of unique because they actually have their chassis production facility. They have their workshop, they have their wind tunnel, and they have their new power unit all on the same campus. Whereas with Mercedes, it's two separate campuses, which kind of works against chemistry and, and things like that. But ultimately for these folks, like, hey, instead of driving the 20 miles to this facility, I'm going to drive the 10 miles to this facility. So it's a pretty simple move for these folks, especially if there's more compensation in it for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's very interesting, too. I think you really nailed it on the head last week when you called it Power Alley. California has Silicon Valley, but the UK has you know power, ad, uh, power Alley with all these Formula One teams located in that hub, more or less, of Silverstone kind of being that uh, that that one central point. And then these UK-based teams kind of clustered around it. I mean, there's a couple of obvious uh, exceptions to that. Uh, Haas being uh, based in uh, North Carolina, Ferrari and Red Bull being based in Italy, and then Alfa Sauber Romeo being based in uh, Switzerland. But, uh, you know, it, it is uh, it is uh, just a, a stunning uh, move and coup, like you said. It's uh, also equally interesting. Uh, Max Verstappen, the Red Bull driver, says that uh, he, underst- he, said he thinks it's understandable that this number of uh, Mercedes staff are, are moving and jumping to to come and join Red Bull, and he believes it's uh, because they want that uh, that Red Bull challenge, and I can understand that to a certain degree. I mean, not that winning ever gets old, but when you've been doing it for so long at at the same team, maybe you do kind of see an attraction in that. Uh, okay, well we've we've had a good run here, seven world championships, all these constructors titles, and just all these records that we've set here, and you see this. Um, I don't want to say that they're that that Red Bull's a sleeping giant because I mean they've had success winning championships in the past. Obviously, they they haven't had it go their way over the past uh, several years. But I mean, they've still been winning races, but the the race wins have kind of been. I'd say maybe calling it an oddity is a, a little bit uh, maybe not so fair on them, but they've been almost like the outlier, right? It's been the, the the weekends when they've been oddly competitive when Mercedes hasn't been. Or there's been uh, been other issues like the double uh, crash at uh, Spain in 2016 when uh, Rosberg and Hamilton collided. Or some of the incidents in Austria or two years ago when uh, when Bottas and Hamilton both had uh, DNFs. It was like the first time that they had a double DNF because of mechanical reasons in what, like 50 years or something insane. But uh, certainly I can see that attraction trying to replicate something similar, but uh, but but somewhere else. And uh, it really is. Uh, I, I know I've said uh, stunning <laughs> a couple of times now, but you have to think, though, that w- with everything that they're doing now at Red Bull, that, y- you know, you have to think that there's a, that this possibility that there might be an opening at one or two seats at Mercedes come the end of the year. I mean, that possibility is out there. We've talked about it at length. But with all these things that Red Bull are doing, 
you just have to think if you're Max Verstappen, if if that's attractive opening at the potential of driving Mercedes is there, is it as shiny and glittery now as it was maybe two months ago or maybe at the beginning of the year? What are your thoughts? I think it's so a one. That's a great question. I, I think if I'm Max Verstappen and I'm his publicist and his agent and, and I'm kind of that core group that's helping direct his career, I think this is a, a really good sign in terms of Red Bull's commitment to the sport. We know they're committed. I, I think this is uh, the Formula One team is a huge part of that company's marketing engine. And I, I don't think they're in a position where they want to forfeit the opportunities that are associated with success in Formula One. But I think just... The fact that they're openly going out and heavily recruiting talented personnel from the team that has dominated the sport for the last seven years, I think that's a really, really, really good sign for Max Verstappen and his team. And and I would say as well, and again, I don't want to speculate too much because I don't know, but I would argue that Red Bull's future, and I'm talking about their commitment to the sport over the next five to 10 years, is probably more concrete even than Mercedes. And again, I don't know anything and I'm not trying to speculate too much, but Mercedes already is in a unique position where they really only own a third of that team. A third is owned by the petrochemical company Ineos, and a third is owned by Total Wolf. Um, ultimately, if either of the other two groups were to sell their shares, I think Mercedes has a kind of, kind of a contractual um, ability to purchase those shares or at least have right of f- refusal on those shares. But if I'm Max Verstappen and I'm looking at like, hey, what team is more committed to the long term of this sport? I think Red Bull's commitment is much more concrete than even Mercedes. And again, we've had this conversation constantly about the fact that how long are road car manufacturers going to be committed to a series that's running fuel or petrol powered vehicles where the industry is switching almost entirely to EV based cars. Like if you go into the forecourt of a car dealer in 10 years, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find a petrol powered car. Everything on that car on that lot is going to be EV. And I guess the relevance of formula one is going to be challenged because of that. But if I'm max and I look at what Red Bull's doing, they are ticking every single box in terms of keeping me there long-term. And that's not to say he couldn't be swayed to go to a different team, but I think Red Bull's doing everything right in terms of keeping him there. And I don't know if you disagree, but that's just my thought. No, I I totally agree. I think that uh, it's just logical because everybody changes team in any sport at at some point in their career. I mean, some guys stick with teams longer than others, and it doesn't matter if it's in the NFL, the NBA, whatever. And the same is uh, with with Formula One. I I mean, it seems inconceivable to see Lewis Hamilton go to another uh, team, especially at this point in his career. And even though Max has been in Formula Formula One since 2015, since he was like four years old. I mean, at some point, (laughs) you have to think that he will change teams, right? But I I think in the short term, that everything is just so nicely lined up. I I mean, it's sort of taken a while, I think, for Red Bull to get to this position. And I really am impressed that they were able to overcome this very massive hurdle in the the, the exit of Honda leaving Formula One. They were able to take over and and like just take control of that IP. And as we've just been talking about, they've been uh, been bringing in all these extremely talented uh, talented people to run this program. And so you have to think now, I mean, if you're Max, you know that uh, that, that the chassis is pretty good. I mean, that uh, department's headed up by Adrian Newey. We all know his record in Formula One and what he's capable of uh, doing. And there, there's just a lot of good things going on. And I mean, this is not to say that uh, that Mercedes won't bounce back from that, uh, bounce back from this. I mean, they've proven time and time and time again, wherever they seem to be hit with some challenges, they sort of ride it out and they're able to overcome them. And then, uh, and then 
what do you want to say, even excel through some of these challenges and setbacks that they that they have. Obviously, some might be more difficult than others. And if this is a big um, example of a brain drain on their own engine team, then yeah, that might take a little bit more time to overcome because these the, these extremely talented designers, these men and women just don't fall off of trees. I mean, you have to go out and really find them, but you have to think that in Formula One, I mean, be a dream job for anybody to work for any one of these teams. But I mean, if you're a, one of these people that have the credentials and the qualifications to work in Formula One, you have to think there's there's probably three teams that would be your first obvious three choices. That would be Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull. And I think that McLaren would probably be pretty close uh, behind them. I mean, uh, they seem to be going in the right uh, direction. I mean, I think those those would probably where the everybody's going to gravitate to, but I think just because of their reputations and their, rec- uh, their, their, their records in the sport, I would think that they would still be able to get the cream of the crop. So difficult maybe in the short term for Mercedes, good position for Red Bull to be in. And I think that uh, Max might, uh, you know, he might want to rethink if he's had any thoughts on, on his own to, to, to move teams that they're in a good place. And Helmut Marco, the motorsport advisor for Red Bull, he said this week that, that they're not going to basically pull the rug out from underneath Max his feet and start focusing too early on the 2022 car because as we know next year is a complete unknown everything's changing except for basically the power units which are going to be in a freeze for the next couple of years but i mean the terms of the cars themselves everything's going to be uh, brand new. So some teams, they're focusing more on these new cars than they are on the current cars. And I, I don't want to say that they're just kind of riding it out. I mean, but the developments and what they're doing on these cars this year is a lot more minimal. But what basically what Marco was saying is that they know that for the first time since 2015 that Max has a championship uh, caliber car and they're not going to divert too many resources away from, uh, from, from this year's car and then put it into 2022 too early in the season. And I think, uh, honestly, Red Bull, I think they've been around long enough. I think that they'll be able to find, strike a good balance between developing uh, what they have in this uh, year's car and focusing on next year's car as well. Yeah, I agree. The, the one point I want to clarify, and I just realized this when I was talking, uh, I don't think I was super clear. I, I think the the exodus of that high-level personnel from the Mercedes power unit team over to Milton Keynes to support the Red Bull efforts... I don't know that we'll necessarily see the impact of that next year or the year after or the year after. My sense is that that core has been brought on board to help Red Bull build the blueprints and the architecture that will be the 2025 power unit. I don't necessarily think that Mercedes is going to see or feel that impact immediately. I think the roadmap for power unit development for the next two, three years is largely set in stone. We know that, and you just did a great job of articulating the fact that the cars themselves, the chassis are going to be fundamentally different next year. The power unit kind of carries over for a couple of years. It's not until we get to that 2025 period where we're going to see a fundamentally new power unit paired to that fundamentally new car. So my sense is the folks that Red Bull have been recruiting and onboarding and tasking with this initiative are really there to develop that 2025, that 2026 power unit. So I don't necessarily think we're going to see a performance drop off at Mercedes because I strongly believe that their roadmap for power unit development is really set in stone for the next couple of years. I think where the truth will hit the road or the truth will hit the pudding. Is that an expression? I don't think so. (laughs) Isn't it where the rubber hits the road? Rubber hits the road. That's what I was trying for. I I think that will really be borne out when we get to the first season with that new engine formula, uh, to be totally honest. But otherwise, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. 
Awesome. Hey, we're a little bit uh, late for a break here. And when we come back, we're going to finally open up uh, the, the, the mailbag and go through some of these really awesome uh, messages we've had over the past week. And we'll do that when we come back on the flip side. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And as promised or threatened, uh, depending on the quality of the email, I shouldn't say threatened. We're not going to embarrass or shame anyone. None of these emails are even in the embarrassing category. That, that would be the kind of email that uh, that I would send into a to, to my favorite podcast or radio show or whatever it is. And I just end up embarrassing myself. Unfortunately, nobody has sunk to my level. So it's all good. So Mark, where do you want to go first? Do you want to go to Twitter? Do you want to go to to the email? What, what's your call? I, you know what? I think we probably should start with email because I think we've got some emails that have been pending for a, a couple of days or weeks in some cases. Okay. I, I just want to say off the top that I'm a big podcast consumer and there's a lot of podcasts that I listen to. And one of my favorite podcasts is a, it's kind of a comedy show um, about the Toronto Raptors and it's hosted by two actual comedians. It's a really funny podcast, but every week they put up a tweet and they're like, Hey, send us your questions. And I'm like a school little schoolboy on Tuesdays, <laughs> like refreshing my Twitter feed. Cause I love to send them a question. And then I listen to the podcast from front to back and hope that they read my question on there. So I am as much a fanboy when it comes to this kind of stuff as I think anyone is, but let's start with email because there's a, an email that you have at the top of the list that I'm really eager to talk about. Okay, I, I think uh, that this first one is uh, you're referring to is from Charles Tinkler. He says, good afternoon, gents. Love your pod. Been listening for a long time. Both of your insight on topics are so amazing, really gets the wheels turning in what I can hopefully say is every listener's head. I'm curious to both uh, to what both of you have to say on this topic. Uh, Esteban Alcon had what I believed a pretty brilliant Sunday in Portugal. Though starting P6 and finishing P7 isn't the best look on paper, he really had an amazing race that showed the type of racecraft and skill he truly possesses. To take that Alpine, which we all know is subpar, and fight in the opening stint with the likes of Ferrari and McLaren is impressive in itself. You never really hear of him much on any broadcasting. I truly believe that Alcon is the most underrated driver on the grid, and I think if he had taken that uh, McLaren seat over Ricardo, McLaren is third in the constructors. I truly think he's a top five driver on the grid who's really ne never had the car to push those expectations. Who would you say? Um, who would you guys say is the most underrated driver right now, and what does that driver need to get into the spotlight and move to the next level? Well, that's awesome. Thanks, Charles. That's a great kind of question and great email. Uh, Mark, you seem to be chomping at the bits to answer Charles's email, so go for it. 
I was actually really excited to answer this question. So a couple of years ago, I actually had the opportunity to meet uh, Esteban Ocon. And and my impression of him at the time, and my impression of meeting him in person shouldn't reflect on his abilities on the track, was he was a little <laughs> bit cold and he was a little bit distant. And I was going to go, because I actually have a photo with him, and I was going to post that photo on the Twitter feed. So I went and dug up this photo from five years ago, and it wasn't Esteban Ocon. It was Pascal Verlein I met. <laughs> so this whole time, I've like I've borne this grudge against Esteban Ocon because he was cold, but it wasn't even Akon men, it was Verline. So that was hilarious. That's awesome. But, but I actually went back and and I wanted to kind of reflect on some of Akon's performances even before this year. And when I met him, he, he was concluding his first season in Formula One. And if you remember, he raced the back half of that season with yeah. the now defunct Manor Racing Team. But if you look at his 2017 season with Force India, he quietly put up a monster year. So this is his first full year in Formula One. He scores 87 points. He finishes in the points in all but two races. He had a retirement in Brazil. He finished 12th in Montreal. He was consistently in the top six, the top seven. And that was with a, it was a capable car, but it was a team that didn't have a tremendous amount of funding. In 2018, his performance kind of regressed a little bit. He scored 49 points. He was still in the points, I think, 10 times that season uh, across 21 races. But the thing to remember about 2018 is that was the year that that team went into administration. Yeah. Money was tight. They'd stopped development on the car. They made no progress during the 17-18 offseason. But the fact that he still scored 49 points and finished in the points 10 times was really, really good. But for me, his benchmark is that 2017 season. And that was a year Force India finished fourth, a surprising fourth, yep. despite the fact that from a budgetary perspective, they had no money to work with. But what I'm starting to see this year is he's putting together a season that could potentially resemble what he did in 2017. And I absolutely agree. He's probably one of the most underrated drivers in the series. And I'm not necessarily sure if it's because of his personality. He's generally pretty quiet. I'm not sure if it's that he's a French driver and the British press maybe don't give as much love to the French drivers. Although you could say that they certainly do with Charles Leclerc. I don't know what it is, but I think he's an uber talented driver. I also think it was such a shame that he didn't have a seat in 2019. And for those of you that are new to the sport, yeah. he raced with Force India in 2017 and 2018. 2019, he sat out because he was, his seat was basically taken by Lance Stroll when Lawrence bought the team midway through 2018. So he actually sat out the year. And I think he was basically functioning as a test driver for Mercedes. But He was a reserve totally driver agree. that year. Totally. Like, yeah. I think he could, and I'd love to hear your opinion, but I think he could quietly put together a really great campaign. You know, I, I went through and did the mental gymnastics on this one. I was thinking about uh, some of the other young drivers. Okay, we've talked at length about George Russell. We've talked a lot about uh, Charles Leclerc. We've talked a lot about Carlos Sainz. I mean, I'm a total Lando Norris fanboy. I don't think that, uh, I, I think his time, he's already there. I mean, he's yeah. impressing each and every weekend. Um, I don't want to say that Lance is underrated. I, I think Lance is has had Lance hasn't reached his ceiling yet. So totally I, I think that totally he's still agree. developing. But uh, but when it comes to Esteban, like, like like you say, you nailed it. He was so impressive in 2017. And I, what what really stands out in my mind is how he was fighting with Perez at uh, at Belgium that year, going out of La Source side by side at uh, you know 150 miles an hour, going up uh, into Eau Rouge. And I mean, this guy. I mean, uh, talk about having uh, you know <laughs> balls of steel. I mean that was you know that that is one of the 
it's a hairy part of uh you know a, a track on a very scary you know it's 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 limits you know you're right on the edge there so that really impressed me the one sort of a uh, blemish on his record is when he took out max verstappen in brazil when he was being lapped uh, i thought that was a, a bit of a you know, I, I think you can maybe put a little bit both at fault there, but I think you maybe waited a little bit more on Esteban. But I think that 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 year that he was forced to sit out because when the musical chairs stopped, he didn't have a, a seat to go into 2019. He ended up uh, being the reserve driver for Mercedes. So last year, it was a weird season to begin with. Renault, they were sort of kind of still figuring it out. And he he really... I think he was picking up last year where he left off at the end of 2018. And I I think it really was the timing of it, of losing a seat and sitting on the sidelines came in at a very unfortunate time in someone who's such a young driver still. And what I'm seeing so far this year really kind of points back to what we saw in in 2017, you know, and I think it'd be really interesting to see where the bulk of those points came in that year when uh, when Lawrence Stroll came in and, and took over Force India, because they were not impressive up until that summer break. But then when we came back at Spa and that latter half of the season, when, when, when the cash tap got opened up again, you could see over the next several races where that car improved. But yeah, I, w- I would agree totally. I would think that uh, Alcon has to be the most uh, underrated uh, driver on the grid other guys we know some guys we think we're still getting there and there's definitely a couple of guys that uh, that, that are probably you know to be quite honest a little bit overrated yeah i i don't yeah. really have anything else to add and it's it's funny because we we do talk so much about some of these younger drivers in the series and i forget that you know esteban Ocon's only 24 he has yeah. 70 grand prix starts he has 20, 25 points finishes. He's an incredibly talented driver. And there's just been some misfortune because to your point that the musical chairs didn't fall in his favor coming out of the 2018 season. And I look forward to what Alpine's able to build around him. And I think that's a really great fit for him from a, a marketing perspective to be partnered with a French team. And I also understand, and, and this is just based on some comments I've read online and, and some of the things that I, I've seen people comment during some of the pressers and things like that. But the sense I get is that from a relationship perspective, he and Fernando Alonso are in a really good place right now. And if you know the sport of Formula One, you know Alonso's history. He's not always been a great teammate to be partnered with. Mm-hmm. But I think this could be a, a relatively good relationship. Ultimately, I don't think Alonso is in the headspace that he is going to or should be winning a championship. And I think for Akon to now have the opportunity to race next to a two times world champion will probably be a good thing for him. And I also think that Alonso is at a point in his career now where he's going to share data and he's going to share best practices and he's going to be open with Akon in a way that perhaps he hasn't been with other drivers in his career. Uh, I think it's a good pairing. I think it could be a very, very good year for that team and especially for Esteban Akon. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, next question. Twitter or mailbag? Email. Oh, Twitter, 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 Twitter. Okay, let's go to the Twitters. You, know, oh, well, you want well, me to read one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't actually have the... I've got the Twitter keyed up uh, for, for something else. But while you're pulling it up, I should just uh, thank everyone. I was checking the rankings. We're currently number two in our category in Apple Podcast Canada, which is absolutely fantastic. I can't remember where we were in the uh, the, the USA uh, Apple Podcast store, but uh, thank you guys so much uh, for all your support. It's truly amazing, and we're, we're very grateful and uh, humbled uh, by that. So I guess we're the Art Garfunkel to somebody else's Paul Simon. We're, we're the John Oates to somebody else's Daryl Hall. 
for obscure and uh, and old fashioned music. But uh, don't I don't have, shake your I, head like that. <laughs> I, I know. I literally know, and I like to joke about you being older than me, even though we're the same age. But I literally know none of those references that you just made. <laughs> we should at least know uh, Simon Garfunkel. I mean, everybody knows Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, well, I grew up with that stuff. My my parents never stopped playing that. Anyways, let's go. Tw- let's go to Twitter. First question. First, First question. question. So this one comes from our good friend, BJ Crabtree, and he asks, and I'm going to read this out to you, on a serious note, how does Haas stay on the grid of a long season such as this? Is there precedence in F1 for a team that is so outmatched so early? How does F1 support? In other sports, you have drafts that enable you to build from the bottom half. Your thoughts? Good question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the in the Bernie Ecclestone era, it's like, well, either you have money to be in Formula One, or if you don't uh, have the money, don't let the door hit you on the way out kind of thing, right? Uh, I, I think this year... I. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, there, there's issues. I mean, they have the Ferrari power unit, which is slightly better than last year, maybe not as underpowered as it was, but it's still maybe not the top end engine to have in the entire grid. The chassis is probably a debatable, probably not the greatest car out there. But then also you have two rookies, one who we think has a lot of uh, potential in Mick Schumacher. We were talking about him last weekend, how he was uh, mixing it up. I mean, he was well down in the race order, but it was a good result for him. I mean, if you take away where he actually finished and okay yeah he's two laps uh, behind and a million miles behind Lewis Hamilton and Max and Valtteri Bottas yeah okay well whatever but it was good progress for him but then you have uh um, Nikita Mazepin he's also a rookie and I mean he is ridiculously slow so I mean the odds that this this is going to be a team that's going to be scoring points and thereby um racking those points up in the world's uh, championships on the constructor side and getting the cash from those points seems very unlikely at the moment. I mean, the thing is, if they're going to score any points, it's going to have to be a bit of a freak kind of result. Maybe it's rain, high attrition, which we don't see very much attrition at that level as we did years ago. And so you have to think if either one of these drivers is going to score points, it would probably be Schumacher first because, I mean, Mazepin is so slow, as one of our listeners pointed out in a, in a tweet they sent us, that Nikita Mazepan would take eight seconds to serve a five-second stop and go penalty. That's that's my take. Is- <laughs> <laughs> that- that was actually a pretty funny joke. I, I just, I, and it's funny because I think you said that to me and it didn't process it. I just got it then. I, I think this is a great question. And I think for folks that are newer to F1, I think what you might be seeing with Haas comes across as uh, an aberration. But the history of Formula One is littered with teams like Haas. Yeah. If you go back and you look at historical standings, constructor standings year over year over year, there's always a Haas. And you know what? I can think back of a couple of examples. You look back at 2016, we had Manor and then we had Marussia. And then if you want to go back to the early 2010s, we had HRT. And if you want to go back to 1997, you have teams like Lola that get to qualifying at the first race, but they don't actually even compete in a Grand Prix. The the sport is littered with teams like this. I, I think the one benefit that Haas potentially has is There aren't a lot of F1 teams right now. I think there's an appetite to buy them. And I think what we've seen historically is oftentimes when a Formula One team is genuinely unsuccessful, it falls off the map. And I... I, I, 
I don't like the fact that there's only 10 teams in Formula One. I, I would feel much more comfortable if there was 11 or 12. And I think when Marussia fell off the map, and I think when Manor fell off the map, that was really unfortunate. And it was sad that there wasn't a billionaire then in the waiting to buy that team and keep them on the grid. But I think what we're seeing with Haas isn't particularly unusual. And you can probably speak to this as well. If you look back at any year in Formula One, there is a Haas. There's yeah. always a Haas. And sometimes they're much, much worse. And I think obviously Haas has made a decision and a very public decision that they're not going to invest in this year's car. And I, I think internally they made the decision that, hey, we could spend a ton of money on this year's car. We're still not going to score any points, or we can take all those financial resources, and invest them in 2022, which is clearly what they're what they're doing. I don't like to see it. I would still like to see more teams. But again, like I said, the history of Formula One is littered with terrible teams. And in some cases, they're the, actually the most fascinating stories of all. And if you go into places like Reddit, you can see that folks will often break into abandoned Formula One factories and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's not unusual. Usual. It's unfortunate, but it's certainly not unusual. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, roadkill along the side of the Formula One highway, <laughs> you know, to use a, a poor metaphor when it comes to teams that just haven't made the cut. I mean, if you go back to the 80s, they even there were so many teams back then. They even had like pre-qualifying for, for teams to even just sort of make the cut to qualify. They had so, pre-qualifying into yeah. the late 90s, which is which is the craziest thing. Like you could never imagine that now. And just to get back to the, the question real quick, like I think part of his question is like, what does Formula One? do to inject parity into the sport. I think one of the things it did is it did away with that concept of pre-qualifying, right? Yeah. Like no matter how bad you are in qualifying, you're going to be on the grid. So you still get that marketing exposure. You still have a chance at championship points. Prior to the last two decades, you could show up at a Grand Prix weekend and there was no guarantee that you were going to even be on the grid come the Grand Prix on Sunday. It was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if there's any real quick sort of band-aid fix to this sort of thing. I think that uh, what they're trying to do with all these uh, financial measures that they've implemented with the cost cap and potentially a salary cap, which seems to bubble to the surface, uh, you know, uh, more often than not. And then the new formula and all these uh, sorts of things to really bring the cost down, I think. And, and that's what it is. When you have like a team like Mercedes or Ferrari spending $350, $500 million a year, and then you have a, a Haas or Williams that it's on the low end that is maybe struggling to spend $100 million uh, on developing and building a car. I mean, that is uh, such a massive difference uh, between the two. I mean, uh, when you have like unlimited uh, financial resources and you can do whatever you want to a team that's uh, basically scrimping and saving and uh, just having to make strategic decisions on every expenditure that they have. I mean, it's a completely uh, a different thing, but I hope they make it. Uh, I hope that they hang around. I mean, the one silver lining in the Haas cloud is, like you say, is that uh, they've been pretty public and open saying they're focusing more on 2022. I mean, if you know that you've got a car that's a bit of a lemon, why throw any more time and money into it? Get your young drivers into it, get them track time, get them the experience that they need, and hopefully next year you're going to have a much better, more competitive car. And with the year under their belts, maybe then you've got that better car and they'll have a chance to, to score some points then when they have a bit of experience to go with, right? Do you think Gene Haas wants to keep that team? Like based on what we saw with DTS, like, do you think he's emotionally invested in this for the long term? It's it. That is really the $64,000 question. I mean, sometimes when you hear some of the things that he says and, uh, you know, not just on DTS, but even some of the, uh, the, 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 the quotes and the snippets out there in the media over the past couple of years is I think he's committed to Formula One to a point. But I think that if somebody came in and, you know, to use a kind of a hackneyed phrase, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. 
I wouldn't be surprised to see Gene Haas sell that team and, and, and walk away. Like, I, I think he's invested, but I don't think it's one of these things that, you know, I'm going to make this team a success in Formula One, you know, come over my dead body kind of thing, right? I think he's only into it up to a certain point, whatever that uh, that limit is. I mean, I think only Gene Haas himself knows. But um, yeah, that, that really is a great, uh, great question. I think it's a big unknown at this point. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take another break here. Then we're going to come back and we'll go back to the mail back or the twitters. We we need like like some like maybe like a set of dice or something to throw or some maybe some some something fancy. But uh, anyways, we'll figure it out. We'll put our heads together in the break here. When we'll figure it out on the flip side in just a moment. So please don't go away. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And well, I'm going to make an executive command decision here, Mark, instead of uh, throwing it out to chance, I'm just going to go back to the, uh, to, to the email and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what comes up, uh, where we go from here. Anyways, uh, next emails from uh, Kevin Rocket, possibly, as he says, our only listener in the great Canadian province of uh, Prince Edward Island. So PEI representing awesome to get an uh, email from you, Kevin. Uh, anyways, he says, at what point does the FIA step in to take a serious looks of, uh, the actions of Mazepin over the first three races. I wouldn't go as far as taking his super license away just yet, but his shenanigans should be looked at more closely. He's angered almost half, maybe more of the grid at this point. And if he considers this nonsense, someone could be seriously injured. I have no doubt in my mind, if this were Stroll, Lawrence would have taken his toy away from him. Love the pod. Keep up the great work. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny the way that uh, Kevin puts that. uh, Before I saw this latest season of uh, Drive to Survive, I might have been, I don't know, if Lawrence would have taken Lance's car away, but I, I'm now firmly in the camp that if Lance doesn't make the cut at Aston Martin, Martin, I have no doubt that at some point Lawrence would say, you know what, you've had your crack, you know, and and it's finally it's coming up to the team and uh, somebody else is going to get that seat. You know, I, again, kind of uh, building on that uh, sort of theme we were talking about before the break with Gene Haas, very much uh, with Lawrence, maybe that tolerance keeping Lance in that car is a little bit uh, higher than maybe someone else just because the fact there's that father-son dynamic there but uh, anyways we're not talking about Lance we're talking about Mazepin I mean he makes some great points I mean he's had some howlers I mean we'd uh, dubbed him Nikita Mazepin for some of his uh, you know uh, issues trying to keep his car pointed in the right direction over the first couple of races and then uh, last weekend uh, you know almost uh, well I mean he pretty much shut the door on Sergio Perez when he was leading the race you know, Gunther Steiner, team principal, kind of bailed him out of that one a little bit, saying that was more of a pit wall kind of error that they didn't let him know. But I mean, regardless, the guy has rearview mirrors on the car. He should have known that that uh, that Perez was was closing on him. Plus uh, the fact that there were several waved uh, blue flags. I think it might have been five. I don't know. The number eight sticks in my mind, but that uh, might be in, uh, incorrect. But yeah, I think he's got to be under the microscope at the the moment. Young driver or not. I mean, safety is paramount and um, it hasn't been a good look for the youngster over the first three races of the season. Yeah. And the, the challenge for Mazepan is 
He wasn't a particularly heralded driver coming into Formula One. You, you look at a lot of the young drivers, like even, and you you talk on Lance Stroll a couple of minutes ago, his, his path to Formula One was a little bit unique because he skipped Formula Two and he came straight in as the champion of Formula Three, but at least he had that championship pedigree at a high level of open wheel racing. And, and if you reflect back on, on Mazapan's history, Really nowhere has he been particularly successful. He He's never won a championship at a high level. He's won some races. He wasn't ultra competitive in, in Formula 2. He finished, I think, 18th in 2019 and 5th in 2020. But certainly that means that there's countless drivers that are more talented that finished ahead of him, despite the fact that he was in a very capable Formula 2 car. And then you compound that with the fact that there's countless really high profile incidents of behavioral issues both on the track and off the track and i think what we've seen this year isn't even remotely surprising like from a behavioral perspective maybe he's actually been more more on good behavior than we would have expected but i think what we're seeing is he's clearly not capable of driving a formula 1 car at at a high level and again, that's that's a little bit masked by the fact that he's driving a terrible Formula One car. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I just I don't think he has the self-awareness or the race car race craft to pilot that car safely. And I'm not sure if he's going to develop effectively in that car. And psychologically, I just I don't think he's in the headspace where he understands and comprehends that. I'm not where I need to be psychologically and emotionally and from a maturity perspective to develop as a Formula One race car driver. And being a Formula One race car driver is part the actual piloting of the car, partly the huge amounts of physical endurance and training that you have to complete off the track, but also just the maturity and the charisma and the personality that comes with being one of 20 Formula One drivers in the world. Like, I just don't think he's there. And I think the question's a unique one, but I think the FIA is in a difficult position, right? Because ultimately, Haas desperately needed the financial injection that his dad brought to the team this year. For all we know, the team may not have been on the grid or Haas may have walked away entirely, which we just spoke about a couple of minutes ago. So they need that money. It's just, it's an unfortunate look that you have this team that's being propped up with finances from somebody who's only injecting that capital to give his son a seat. And like I said, the Lance Stroll situation is a little bit different because he had a championship pedigree and he was probably going to go to Formula One regardless of whether his father was heavily investing in a team. I mean, it didn't hurt. But in the Mazapan case, he would not be anywhere near Formula One mm-hmm. if not for that capital injection that his dad plugged into that team. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't really have uh, too much uh, to add to 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 what you say. I mean, I know that we've been quite hard on him. I mean, for for behavioral and off track issues, uh, rightly so. But I mean, I don't want to be maybe more unfair than we need to. But I think what we're seeing is more when it comes to the on-track stuff is a young driver that doesn't maybe quite have the pedigree that some of his contemporaries have and he to me he just looks a guy that's a little bit in over his head he's in deep and he's struggling to come to terms with a with a lot of things to uh you know to really get to where he needs to be and just and just to be clear as well i'm not i'm not i don't root for anyone to fail I don't want no, him to absolutely fail. Like, not. I would I think it would be a great story for him to become successful and to mature and to be yep. an ambassador for the sport. Like I'm not cheering for that. I'm just saying what we've seen so far is what we could have extrapolated based on his known history. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm going to just move on to the next one because this one's more of a comment. So we got a message here from JJ in Houston, and I'm jealous by this one. 
So JJ and his girlfriend have got tickets to the U.S. Grand Prix at uh, at the Circuit of the Americas coming up this fall. He's going to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, uh, well, he wants to know if either or both of us are going to be there. And because Canada is still a festering hotbed of COVID, it really depends on whether or not we can get out of the dang country. So that one uh, remains to be seen. But uh, thanks for the message, uh, JJ. Uh, back to the Twitters then, Mark. What's going on on Twitter? Well, the next question, um, as I'm desperately trying to get my phone ready, comes from Vincenzo Landino. And this is a really good question. And it's something that we haven't addressed in the last couple of shows. But will Scuderia, so speaking to the Formula One team of Ferrari, return to glory anytime soon? So I'm going to ask you that question. But to set this up, we need a little bit of context. So Ferrari obviously is the bedrock of the sport in so many different ways, but they've not won a championship since 2007. So they have a 14-year drought going, but his question to you, my friend, is when will Ferrari return to glory, if at all? Yeah, again, this is one of these uh, great unknowns, and it just sort of boggles the mind that a team with the history of Ferrari, a team with the funding of Ferrari, the fact that uh, they could basically hire any driver or engineer or, I don't know, uh, you know office manager or a- anybody in the world would love to go and work for that team. I mean, they are one of the most celebrated marks in motorsport, in road cars, just anywhere. I mean, they have to be the top dog. So the fact that they have not won a championship in that many years, I think basically I think it's scandalous, to be quite honest. I, I don't think it's disappointing. I think it's absolutely scandalous that a team of their nature, their stature, and the amount of money that they have is just, um, it's its absolutely incomprehensible that they have not been able to to, to win a championship. And I, I really don't know. I'd like to say that uh, that it's going to be, I mean, we're, we're basically taking the F1 Etch-A-Sketch and shaking it up and starting with a brand new slate for, for next year. And I think that's where Ferrari has to look. I mean, this car this year is a little bit better than last year and then probably also 2019. But as we've seen, they still sadly lack straight line speed. And again, they're sort of mucking it up uh, with the, the likes of Alpine, with the um, McLaren. I mean, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you're Ferrari, you don't want to be me- um, mucking it around in the midfield. You should be up there at the front fighting with the Red Bulls, fighting with the Mercedes. And I, I don't know. I mean, just based on a lot of the things that they were saying, not only just in the, the last couple of months, but even going back a year, that this is really sort of a mid to long term project that they're working on to get this team working and, and, and looking in the right direction. And, and I'm not really expecting something, maybe not even next year. I'm thinking maybe 2023, possibly 2024. I mean, if you're a Ferrari fan, that's something that you probably don't want to hear. But I'm, I'm not really buoyed by a lot of optimism for them uh, right now. I, I'd love to see it. I think it's good for the sport. I mean, everybody gets excited when Ferrari wins. I mean, obviously, when you go to Monza, I mean, the 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 atmosphere is there is wonderful, regardless if uh, Ferrari is winning or not. But when they win like Charles did in 2019. It's just an absolute explosion of motorsport passion and just excitement. And it, and it's awesome. But yeah, I, I don't think it's going to come anytime soon, just to put it in a nutshell. 
I loved your point about the fact that they haven't won a championship in the last 14 years being scandalous or, or, or almost criminal. And you're absolutely right. Like based on the financial resources that this team has, they absolutely should have won a constructors or a driver's title. And you think since they last won a title, Mercedes won a driver's title, Braun won a title, then left, Red Bull won four, uh, Mercedes has won seven. Like so much has happened since then. But I think the good news for this team is that part of the puzzle's in place, right? In the sense that they're all obviously committed to Charles Leclerc and they feel like he's a driver of the future and he's the right driver to pilot them to a championship. And they, they showed that confidence by giving him that three year guaranteed commitment. And Mm -hmm. you rarely see that in formula one. So I think from their perspective, Hey, part of the puzzle is kind of setting up our driver lineup. And I think they've got the driver lineup they want. I think to your point now is just overcoming some of the obstacles in terms of engineering a better power unit to make them more competitive in ways that doesn't run afoul of the the formula one engine formula regulations um and then ultimately it's going to be continuing to develop that chassis and aerodynamics but again ultimately you touched on this earlier we're going to have completely new cars next year Mm -hmm. so ultimately we don't know what next year could hold i think this is probably the growth and the development that that team had probably wanted to see coming into this year, obviously mixing it up with the middle fields a lot better than where they were last year, where it's just, they were struggling in some races to score points, but I don't necessarily know what's going to be. It's obviously going to not going to be this year. I think even if they come back with a really great chassis next year and they have their arrow absolutely dialed in, I think they're still going to have a deficiency from a power unit perspective. So I think to your point, like maybe 2023, maybe 2024 for them to be competitive, but that also kind of makes the assumption that the other teams like Red Bull and Mercedes aren't going to continue to evolve and develop their cars as well. Well, that's the thing. They need to evolve, but they need to out, um, out-evolve or evolve quicker and and Great further point. than their than their rivals. So I mean, it is a, a massive, massive thing. Anyways, uh, Mark, I want to take another break here. When I come back, I want to talk about fastest lap points, uh, which we talked about uh, after the Grand Prix last weekend. And we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And uh, for all of you listening on the podcast and everybody viewing on uh, on YouTube, welcome one and all. And I want to, well, first of all, I need to apologize to our this next listener, Gary Garcia. He sent a, an email. I rep- replied to Jerry Garcia. I had this a whole Grateful Dead thing going on. So that's my bad. I feel horrible about it. And, uh, you know, I'm always getting people misspelling my last name. So it's never a nice thing when somebody misspells a name. So I apologize uh, for that, uh, Gary. Anyways, he made... A great point uh, he addressed. We talked about uh, fastest lap points and that little squabble at the end of uh, the, the the Portuguese Grand Prix. Anyways, Gary had to say, I disagree that the fastest lap points are a gimmick, especially in a race like yesterday where we all knew Lewis would win. It added some excitement to the end of the race where there was none. Plus, imagine if Lewis went off the track and it took him seven seconds or so to get back on. Red Bull would have been kicking themselves. It adds a risk factor. Thank you, Gary. So, yeah, you know, 
I'll admit that uh, I thought when it was introduced the, that it was a gimmick, and I'm going to stand by that. But I think that probably we saw the first real example of why they brought this point in all those years ago. It's just really, I think, taken a while to get there. And absolutely, those pit stops that both Red Bull did with Verstappen and Mercedes did with Bottas, they were extremely risky. And then just like Gary says, I mean, if, if Lewis had a very un-Lewis-like moment and went off the track and, uh, you know, he with Max only five seconds behind. If it takes him, you know, five, six, seven seconds to get out of the gravel and or off the grass back up to speed, then you know, Max is a couple of seconds in, in front. So I actually found it compelling whether or not we're going to see this each and every weekend. Again, like this whole Verstappen Hamilton battle that we've seen kind of seesaw back and forth over the first couple of races of the season. That's one I'm kind of hoping to be prolonged. But if we could see it more, I totally agree that it would add uh, more excitement to the race. And it, it was good to see when, especially when it looked like the podium was all locked up. I think if the folks at Liberty were listening to this podcast right now, they would be high-fiving each other because what uh, <laughs> what this listener describes is exactly what they were trying to achieve, right? Which is, you look at the last seven years, Lewis would have most races locked up by the two-third mark, by that the 50% mark. And I think what their viewership numbers were showing was that you would see this rapid drop-off in viewers by the halfway mark of the race. But this is one of those tools that keeps people engaged with the race. And it's funny because the other point that uh, Mr. Garcia makes is this comment about, hey, look, Red Bull is making a risk, right? Like if you're going to pull that car in to change tires and you're going to forfeit the 30 seconds of lap time, ultimately, if Lewis was to have made a mistake, you could have won the race. So you're... You're risking that opportunity, not knowing whether it's going to happen or not. But I thought that was a really good point too, because it's the same thing I was thinking when I was running the other day, which is like, hey, look, you know what? You're probably not going to win unless Lewis makes a mistake. So you're banking on him not making a mistake to pit to get the new tire so you can go out and chase the fastest lap. But you do that knowing that if Lewis does go off, you're compromising an opportunity to win a race. So I think that adds another interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, back to Twitter or to the mailbag? No, Twitter. I've got Twitter? one. So I okay. think this one I can answer quickly. So this is a good question. Um, it's from a listener. At least the the Twitter handle is EasyDubIt. Thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for all your support. And the question is, what is the best website to buy Grand Prix tickets? It looks like he's eyeing Monza in September. So I think I can answer this one quickly. Um, right away, I already checked. Those tickets aren't on sale yet. And I think it's because local health authorities haven't made it clear how many tickets should be available, how many people are going to be invited into that complex. Um, I think that would be a fantastic race to see. Sure, I think absolutely. the one thing I would be very, very careful of is that if you Google F1 tickets, there are a thousand different teams or a thousand different websites that are selling Formula One tickets. My recommendation is to either buy directly from FormulaOne.com or from the actual race organizer. And the race organizer website is often integrated with the, the track itself. So if you're buying for Abu Dhabi, you buy from the Yas Marina website. If you're buying from the Montreal Grand Prix website, you're typically buying from Octane. But there's a whole bunch of ticket aggregators out there um, and I would be very, 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 very careful with those. I would just try to buy directly from the source wherever possible, because if you're buying through a ticket aggregator, you're typically paying a premium, you're paying fees. Um, there could be some authenticity issues with the tickets. If you mm. have challenges with payment or if the tickets don't show up, you can't go to the organizer for support. So just be very careful Buy either directly from the race organizer and figure out who that is or buy directly through F1.com when those tickets do go on sale. 
Okay, awesome. Uh, those are some uh, good tips. Okay, let's go back uh, to the email bag. We got a, a pair of emails here from uh, Eli in Kentucky. Um, he had some uh, questions uh, first about uh, track limits, uh, which we were, were talking about. And actually, I should credit Eli. He's the one that sent the uh, Mazapan taking eight seconds to serve a five-second stop-and-go uh, penalty. Anyways, this uh, one question is uh, right up uh, your alley, so I'm going to throw this one to you. So Eli writes, uh, what would you all recommend for F1 News? I follow F1 and teams on Twitter and listen to this podcast. Do you have any recommendations? I prefer not to get my news directly from the team's or organization and want at least one degree of separation. Anyway, that's a good point because anything that comes from the, the, the team's official channels are always going to be, I don't want to say out and out propaganda, but it's going to be heavily, <laughs> heavily pro Mercedes, heavily pro Ferrari. So there, there's not going to be you know, a lot of objectivity in there. It's going to be very slanted, it's a very biased uh, news that you're going to be getting from any of the official sources, right? Eli, this is such a, a great question. I would answer it this way. I would be very, very careful with most of the Formula One news websites. And I'm going to put a few on blast. Websites like planetf1.com and things like that. Formula One is notorious for clickbait. And when I talk about clickbait, I'm talking about entire articles that are absolutely buried in advertisements that are driven around a single quote or a single comment. And mm -hmm. they drive quotes or they drive traffic because this Formula F1 champion from 25 years ago um, was quoted making a comment about a current driver. To me, that's not news and it's not meaningful. And I think sometimes it can send you in the wrong direction. But what I found to be really useful, and I'm really curious, Mark, to hear kind of where you go for news as well, is I've started using Reddit as a really good tool for aggregating news. And if you go to Reddit, and Reddit, if you haven't been there before, can be a little bit daunting, but the F1 community on Reddit is fantastic. There's a million active users in there. But it's a really great place to see what type of stories are really meaningful and really rich in terms of substance and quotes and research and things like that. So if you rely on websites like planetf1.com, you're relying on clickbait. And those are commercially driven sites that are purely driven off shock value quotes and things like that. But for me, I found Reddit to be a really good aggregator of F1 news. And the way that the Reddit algorithms work is it typically pushes the more meaningful, impactful stories to the top. And not only can you see the story, but you can get a pretty good perspective or I would say... Um, heartbeat or pulse on what the community's feeling regarding a story or whether it's meaningful. So Reddit's become a big place for me. In terms of other news, there are some really good podcasts as well. I like F1 podcasts that aren't, and you make this great point about like not liking to get news from the source. Um, I try to listen to more independent podcasts, and I think Shift F1 is a really good one. Uh, WTF1 is is a really good one as well. Um, I again, I don't like too much of the stuff that's being produced by Formula One itself because it's kind of state propaganda-ish to kind of steal a coin or a term that you just had. But that's kind of where I go for a lot of it. As a as a North American, I've been watching ESPN carefully and. The stuff they've posted is pretty good. It's less clickbaity and it's a, it's a little bit more rich. But I would say that if you're not on Reddit, add the app to your phone and just spend some time in the F1 community because there's some really good stuff there. Yeah, you know, I I totally agree with all those shouts uh, that you you made just there. And I mean, the one thing again, and and I base this on my my own media experience dealing with the with the professional athletes, uh, you know, in soccer and MLS, the national teams. 
And I, I notice it too whenever you see the drivers uh, going and giving like post-race interviews, especially in the the old normal pre-COVID. Uh, you know, you would have uh, Sebastian Vettel, and he had like his media handler from Ferrari, and the you know whoever it is, right? And that always reminds me in my days from covering MLS and the national teams that you know you go into a press conference, you go to um, interview a player, and it doesn't matter what what level it. Well, I mean, especially the higher levels, but you know you have one of those representatives from from the uh, from their communication department standing there and recording the conversation as well. And there, there's always a level of awkwardness, and you just kind of know that you. You know, every answer is met with a smile. You know that they're they're going to just toe the party line. They're not going to really go out and say anything too risque or anything that uh, you know. They're they're not going to give you the answer that you really want. So. You know, that, that's why I'm a little bit kind of leery of, um, you know, the official sources. I mean, granted, they will come up and, and give you stories you're not going to have find anywhere else just because they are the official source. But again, they're going to try and twist the story in their own uh, own way. But I mean, uh, Reddit's certainly a great place because like you say, I mean, what's really popular is really going to kind of percolate up uh, through the top. And then if you want to see what the fans are talking about, you know, jump on to like Twitter or whatever as well. And just to see, you know, you know connect with people there, or, you know, just, um, you know, follow a couple of hashtags hashtags and see what where, where the conversation is going. The one other thing I would add, and I really love this question from Eli, is if you're a North American sports fan, you're probably used to consuming a lot of college football and the NFL and Major League Baseball and the NBA. Those yeah. are big sports with hundreds of athletes and hundreds of executives and farm teams. The players are generally accessible. The executives are accessible. The teams have big footprints in the cities with infrastructure and personnel that works at the arena. There's yeah. a lot going on and there can be a lot of news. Formula One is much, much, much more compact and insular. It's very much kind of a closed ecosystem and yeah, very, very, much. very very few reporters actually get credentialed to follow the sport. And my perspective is that those folks that do get credentialed and have access to the drivers on a regular basis are probably unlikely to do anything to compromise that that access. So you don't see the same level of hard-hitting reporting in Formula One that you typically would in North American sports or even in the British Premiership where mm -hmm. the media can go hard at a team, they can go hard at a player, they can go hard at a coach. You don't see that in the same way in Formula One. The media travel with the teams. They're very close. They're very insular. The teams eat together. They travel together. But the factories are very closed. There's NDAs everywhere. It's just, it's a much tighter, more kind of insular ecosystem than I think we're used to with North American sports. So a lot of the stories that you would see break in North American sports don't happen in Formula One in the same way. And I criticize all those clickbait stories, but it just speaks to the fact that there's an appetite for F1 news. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's so little meaningful F1 news out there to satisfy the demand that exists. And I think part of it's because it is such a closed ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the really juicy stuff doesn't always uh, leak out in the way that uh, we're, we're used to when we expect here in uh, North America. Hey, Mark, I want to take a, another break here when we come back. Still plenty of questions uh, to get to get to, and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. And welcome back to the show, Mark. Where are we going now? Twitter, back to the mailbag. Got I got an email. Question, okay, go for it. actually staying on the topic of Ferrari. So okay, Rajesh cool. Padalkar, and I apologize if I pronounced that last name wrong, but Rajesh has a great question. Back to the Scuderia. Is it so hard for Ferrari to have cars with high straight line speeds? I mean, even if Lewis Hamilton is in gravel or P10, we know he will pass all cars in between. <laughs> Same can't be said of Ferrari cars. If they're on P4, they stay there or end up P6, et cetera. So yeah. where is that? Where's the top line speed? What do they need to be able to do to get that top line, spe or top line speed back? 
Yeah, well, I think uh, that that high downforce uh, model that they've gone with with the past couple of years has really hindered them. Also, the issues with the power unit themselves. But I mean, it really is painful to see how slow they are. I mean, it's such a deficit that they have in in, in straight line speed. And we even saw it last weekend, not just with the uh, Ferrari, but uh, just how much straight line speed Mercedes had. I mean, the way that uh, Lewis just came and slingshotted himself past uh, Max Verstappen. And then when uh, when Max was behind Bottas for so long, I mean, even with the DRS, I mean, the DRS, all it did was uh, just make sure that Max didn't, uh, you know, it just maintained that gap to Bottas. He wasn't closing up. But I mean, just watching at the lack of straight line Ferrari or speed that Ferrari has had over the past year and a half now, it's just it's just painful, isn't it? I, I totally agree. And I think the real root cause here is if you flash back two years ago, so let's go back 24 months. Top line speed, straight line speed was not this team's issue. They had it in spades. Unfortunately, it turns out the way that they were achieving that speed may not have been sportsmanlike. And ultimately, <laughs> and ultimately they, they had their wrist slapped and they had to modify the power unit. So yeah. the speculation, at least what we believe, is that they were running an illegal fuel map. So they were pumping more fuel into the engine, which means they were compensating by pumping more air into that engine and they were creating more power. But it wasn't within the sporting regulations. So ultimately, they had to go back and say, okay, you know what? That fuel map was illegal. So we're going to run a legal fuel map. But the problem is the the power unit they they built over the preceding two or three years was contingent on that illegal fuel map that they were running. So all of a sudden now they're running a power unit that was developed for the ground up for a fuel map that they can no longer run. So ultimately they have to rebuild that power unit from the inside out. So there is no easy fix for this team. They've got to do some fundamental work. And I think one of the bigger issues is they've got combustion efficiency issues. Um, I think the power unit isn't as compact as it needs to be. The thermal efficiency is down relatively relative to teams like Red Bull and Mercedes, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, and ultimately, I think it just comes down to that fact that they built and designed and engineered a power unit, like a mechanical power unit that was designed to run with a fuel map that wasn't legal. And now they're running a legal fuel map, but they've got a power unit that isn't optimized for that fuel map. And they really need to go back to ground zero. And they're in a challenging position now, which is, do we go all in on that new power unit for the next generation of power units, even though we don't know what that formula is? Or do we spend a ton of money on this engine knowing that we're confined by a cost cap? And I know that there's some cost cap exemptions for uh, power unit development, but ultimately they're in a really tough place and there's no easy way out of this mess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. It's just like we were going that we were talking about a little bit earlier that the window that it, it seems realistic for Ferrari to be competitive again and, and mixing it up with the top couple of teams seems to be a couple of years down the road at, uh, at earliest. But then again, they might back and uh, surprise us next year. But I'm... Uh I'm skeptical until proven otherwise. Okay, uh, moving on to the next uh, question. Uh, comes from uh, Carlos Hernandez. Uh, sent a very nice uh, long email. But uh, this one here, like he, he makes a point uh, right at the end. Uh, we were corresponding uh, back and forth. Uh, one thing we were talking about was the the, the whole, uh, you know, Sebastian Vettel uh, and the the, uh, the comment that, uh, that Christian Horner made on Drive to Survive when it was announced that Vettel was leaving Ferrari, but he was going to be with the team to the end of the year. That uh, the whole, you know, it's like breaking up with your girlfriend but she's still living in your health uh, thing which seems to be kind of a bit of an infamous uh, quote at the moment anyways um, we talked about that uh, on email but uh, one thing that uh, I, I think maybe you might be the, the best one to answer this one is um, so Carlos writes I have another question that I hope you don't mind helping me with regarding Red Bull racing I noticed they race under the Austrian flag but they're based in the UK I'm curious as to the purpose and benefits of this arrangement thanks again and keep up the good work yeah, that's an interesting question. 
And I, I've always found it funny that the FIA allows teams to be licensed based on a nationality, even if they're not functionally operating out of that country. Yeah. Um, and currently Haas, like is, is Haas currently, and I don't know, but I, I think Haas is licensed as a US team, even though they're largely based out of the UK. I think this really has to do with the fact that Red Bull as an organization is largely based from a corporate presence perspective in terms of a tax contribution perspective. I believe Red Bull is principally based out of Austria. They they also own the hum, Hungara ring. So they also own a Formula One racetrack in that country. And I know that they've got some corporate uh, tentacles in, in Thailand as well, but I believe it's principally because of their corporate relationship to Austria. Now, you made a really great point earlier in the podcast, which is regardless of where the financing for these teams comes from, overwhelmingly, they're based out of the UK. And there's kind of a corridor that kind of runs up the, I guess it's the M40 from London to Birmingham. And there's a whole bunch of Formula One teams that are kind of in that vicinity. You've got McLaren, you've got Williams, you've got Red Bull, you've got Mercedes, and I'm probably forgetting a few others. And they're based there because- yeah, Aston Martin, absolutely, at Silverstone itself. And they're based there because there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure. So if you're starting a Formula One team today, you typically want to be close to your suppliers. And most of the suppliers and most of the, I would say, intellectual capital lives in that space. So they're based there. But they're also based in Milton Keynes because Red Bull wasn't a new team. It wasn't like an expansion franchise when it started. Red Bull basically took over the operations of a pre-existing team and they basically just took over that factory. And that's how they basically got their entrance into Formula One. So they're a British team because ultimately where they're based in Britain because they need to be near the resources and all of their suppliers. They're based there because that's where the team that they were based on was based. But ultimately, from a corporate entity perspective, they're based in Austria. And I think that they've just got some really strong emotional ties to that flag. So that was kind of a long meandering question. But I, I believe and I would speculate that that's probably why. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. The only thing I have to add is that they own the Red Bull ring in Spielberg, Austria, not the Hungara ring. Did I uh, call the Hungara ring? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just want to correct you because, you know, knowing how smart that our listeners are, somebody's going to pick up on that. We're going to get flooded with messages, but uh, all good. Yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating uh, thing to see like these different teams. And I always find it interesting that teams like Alpine, Renault or Mercedes, you know, being French or German manufacturers are built or, you know, based in the, in the UK, right? I mean, it's not so- just the... I have a text from my wife who's upstairs hearing me, and the text is Red Bull Ring 15 exclamation marks. There you go. Shall we, shall we segue now into the next uh, next question? Yeah, let's yep. do it. Okay, do you have a do you have a Twitter one? Because I got one more left in the mailbag. So I think we're good to finish up the mailbag. I think that's pretty much everything from a Twitter perspective. Okay, well, the last one comes from uh, Chris Lee, fellow Vancouverite. Uh, he said he's also a Gen DTS and due to the sport, same with his uh, friend group which is awesome and uh, he said basically they all became Formula 1 fans by uh, recommending uh, Drive to Survive uh, to one another so that's uh, that's awesome so the one thing that he was uh, getting um, that he was uh, sending to us uh, was uh, the, the fact that we've been talking about the official F1 TV app and the fact that it was just uh, you know the you know there was no native uh, TV app to like Apple TV and stuff like that or no no opportunity to or at least until recently to, to cast it to a, a device anyways Chris had uh, forwarded us a 
link to um, an app that somebody had, uh, made. Unfortunately, when I checked it on, on Reddit, it seemed like the original one had been uh, deleted. But it seemed like it was uh, pretty cool, like the way that uh, he was uh, describing it. It was it was like an unofficial app that handed uh, or handled things like multiple screens, like the pit, the main screen, the drivers, and stuff like that. And I thought it was really cool because I, I watched uh, last weekend's race um, through F1 TV. I cast it from my phone to the TV or to my Apple TV and watched it that way rather than I usually just uh, DVR everything from TSN. And the one thing that I noticed, and I can't remember if I mentioned the, the, the post-race show that we did last weekend, but the fact that there were no commercials was it, it was, it was such a game changer because I think you and I have had this co- uh, conversa- uh, conversation away from the show that it just seems that every time something interesting happens on TSN that you know be it the first rounds of pit stops or something it seems that the 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 intentionally or not it seems that the commercials always come at the same time or at, at the worst possible time I should say and that's what I noticed in just streaming it from uh, F1 TV just the completeness of the race without distractions every 10 or 15 minutes or whatever it is really increased my enjoyment and experience of the race itself. It was an absolute game changer. Yeah, for our listeners in Europe and Asia and the United States and pretty much every country in the world, you probably don't understand what Mark's speaking about. But when we watch Formula One races in Canada on the domestic feed on TSM, which is that network I spoke to earlier, which is kind of the Canadian ESPN equivalent, yeah. we get commercials. Now, they they don't cut away from the race, but they basically shrink the race down into this tiny little window. And then a bigger window appears, which is the commercial. But you get the audio for the commercial. And to your point, it's almost as if if they wait until there's a particularly interesting moment in the race to throw up the commercials but the frequency of the commercials in in my in my impression has increased exponentially over the last couple of years so yeah. last year i switched to the f1 tv pro app and for all its faults the fact that i don't have to watch commercials during the race is such an unbelievable experience and i think in your case like you just had that a b comparison like trying to watch a formula one race with commercials is just the worst experience ever well especially when they they seem to increase when you get to the latter stages of the race, especially yes. when it, when it's exciting. I mean, uh, imagine like uh, Bahrain a couple of weeks ago when you're breaking to uh, you know commercials at such an intense point of a race where you're focused. Okay. Max is going to be within striking distance of uh, trying to make an overtaking maneuver on Lewis in a couple of laps. You can tell just, uh, you know, he's faster. And then, you know, it it sucks. You know, it, it just sucks all the life out of it uh, because, hey, I understand why, why the advertising is there. It pays for it and all those sorts of things. But, you know, when, when you have like the big feed sort of shrunken down to a little P&P in the corner and the audio is taken away, it just... Um, I find it very, very difficult to, uh, to to really still stay focused, even on the big screen like I have in my house. But it really was a game changer. So that's why I'm I'm really looking forward to the day when there is a native F1 TV app to for like Apple TV where you can get all these multiple different feeds. You know, you can get the pit camera, you can get the driver camera. I mean, no, I, I mean I'm not going to complain because I thought it was fantastic the way it was. But when that day that app comes for Apple or Android, I mean. It's it, it's really going to take things to a different level, and it has to be a top priority for them. It has to be. I completely agree. Um, I just want to go back to something as well, and I know we kind of finished up the mailbag. And we have a few other things to talk about, but Eli had also asked a question about the Miami Grand Prix, and yeah. I'll be honest, like I have. 
I fully intend to attend that race, the, the inaugural Formula One race in Miami. Um, he's asking, how much can I expect to spend? And I'll be very honest, based on everything I've heard, expect to spend a lot of money. So one of the unique things about the Miami Grand Prix is, by all accounts, there will be no general admission. So if you're attending that race, you'll be sitting in a grandstand. Seating will be largely limited relative to what we see in Austin, mm -hmm. and the ticket pricing will be at an absolute premium. So I would expect this to certainly be the most expensive race in this hemisphere. And I think if you're from out of town, and in your case, I think you'll be road tripping or flying in from somewhere in the Southwest. I don't want to give away your exact location, but I would presume you're probably going to be staying in a hotel. Uh, the other expectation I have as well is that hotel prices, that race weekend, will be on par with Super Bowl hotel rates when that city hosts the Super Bowl. So expect to spend a good amount of money that weekend. And of course, hospitality charges, all those kind of things typically go up as well. The good news is that Miami is very much an event city. So hotel accessibility should be pretty strong. And you can always stay outside of the city limits. You don't necessarily have to stay within the, the city boundaries, but I would expect that to be a very, very, very expensive weekend. Yeah, it's probably one of those scenarios. It's uh, think whatever you're going to pay and then double it kind of thing. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And then the unfortunate thing for us is every time we look at the US, like, okay, that those tickets for that weekend are $1,500. And then you do the currency conversion, like it's $9,000. And I still don't have a vaccine. So I'm not going anyways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, the international travel seems to be a bit of a, you know, um, a luxury that's not going to happen anytime uh, for us. Canadians at the moment. Hey, Mark, uh, I've, I just want to close it up here. We're going to take one final break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, the Spanish Grand Prix coming up uh, this weekend. I just want to thank everybody for all the fantastic emails and tweets. Please keep them coming. Love to do these uh, sorts of extended mailbag uh, discussions uh, more in the future. So anyways, having said that, uh, let's just uh, replenish our drinks, stretch our legs, and uh, we'll come back and we'll start to wrap it up in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, as we said way back when at the beginning of this show, we are in the middle of a back-to-back -back race weekend. Portugal last weekend, Spain this weekend. I'm excited. Anytime we have a back-to-back -back weekend, it's always fun to know you got a Grand Prix to plan your days off around. So certainly this is one that I'm looking forward to because I've been to the Spanish Grand Prix. It was way back when in 2014. Seems not that long ago, but time, as they say, flies. So uh, I'll be curious to get your your take on this. I mean, for for those of you that are new to things, you know, I, I'm expecting a fairly similar race to last weekend because I think there's a lot of similarities between Portimao and Portugal and Barcelona. There are a couple of tracks where there's a, I think there's more elevation change in uh, in Portugal than there is in Barcelona, but there there are two similar tracks with a lot of corners they kind of fold in on themselves. We've got uh, two DRS zones again. We got the nice long straightaway at uh, at Barcelona, and then the short Short back straight away, just over. I'd say on the second half, uh, back half of the uh, of the lap. Um, again, this is a track that the teams have tested at for years and years and years and years. We 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 tested in Bar, uh, sorry, in Bahrain this year rather in Barcelona. The thing is, most of the drivers know this track uh, like the back of their hand. Unfortunately, this is not a track where we see a ton of overtaking. It's a great place to go watch a race, to experience a Grand Prix, but the races here can be a little bit uh, non-eventful. I mean, uh, Portugal at Portimao, last year we saw a whole bunch of uh, overtaking uh, you know, passes going on. This past weekend, maybe not as much as last year, but still it was significant. But 
it's it's interesting. Uh, we saw last weekend how Portimao suited uh, Mercedes maybe a little bit more than uh, Red Bull. So I'm just kind of wondering if we're going to see a little bit of carryover between the two races just based on the fact that these are two very, very similar circuits. I think you've done a really good job of summarizing what my expectations are for this race weekend. This is a racetrack that Lewis Hamilton has absolutely owned. And, you know, if you want to yeah. flash back to the beginning of the hybrid era, he won in 14, uh, Nico Rosberg won in 15, Max Verstappen won in 16. And if you don't know about 2016 and you're newer to the sport, I encourage you go and watch the race replay highlights from the 2016 Spanish Grand Prix. It was the first race that Max Verstappen won as a Formula One driver. It's totally worth checking out. Hamilton won again in 17, 18, 19, and 20. And I think we have every reason to expect that he's probably going to be in the mix this time as well. Yeah. Weather looks like it could be a little bit mixed. So I think the forecast for Barcelona itself is probably going to be around 20 degrees, which is a little bit cool for this time of year. They're expecting possibly a little bit of moisture Sunday, Monday. So who knows? Maybe we'll have some moisture for the race weekend itself. And you're right. We typically spend a lot of time doing off-season testing. We didn't this year because of the COVID situation. It was moved to Sahir in Bahrain. Uh, but ultimately, you're right. It's a track that drivers are familiar with it. They're familiar racing in the wet. They're familiar racing in the cold. They've raced here borderline in the snow in the winter's testing. It's a track they're very, very familiar with. But I think the expectation is that it's going to be very similar to what we saw last weekend, which is probably going to be either a Red Bull or a Mercedes on pole, and then possibly a close battle, and probably a close battle between Hamilton and Verstappen, simply because both of them are so familiar with this track. And clearly, Lewis Hamilton has worlds of confidence at this circuit because he's absolutely dominated there over the course of the, the last seven years. The one other thing I'll add as well is that from a Canadian perspective, this is always, to me at least, a, a really special Grand Prix because it's a race where two separate Canadians have actually come out victorious. Gilles Villeneuve won here in 1981 racing in a Ferrari and his son won there 16 years later, Jacques Villeneuve racing in a Williams Renault in his uh, driver's championship season. So for me, it's all, I always have a little bit of a soft spot just because there's some Canadian sentimentality with this track. But yeah, I think ultimately the race weekend is going to come down to something between between Max and Hamilton. Hopefully it's more entertaining, but I don't see any reason to expect otherwise. What about you? Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if um, Red Bull learned anything to take away from, from Portimao last weekend and maybe apply that to, to the race uh, coming up this weekend because I, I kind of get the same sort of feeling that the e the edge or the advantage, whatever you want to call it, might favor Mercedes more. That's why I'm a, a little bit encouraged by the fact that you say that there there is a, a you know potential maybe for some moisture on the weekend because that would certainly edge change things up. I mean, when we went back there in 2014, it was, I mean, this is usually about the time of the season that we see uh, Barcelona, usually the beginning, middle of May. And when we were there, the weather was was perfect. We were there like on the, uh, the Sunday afternoon, it was about 23 degrees Celsius. I think that's about 74, 75 degrees Fahrenheit. It was dry. It was uh, perfect uh, conditions to, to go watch a race. I mean, add that to the fact that it's a super easy, accessible track to get to. I mean, especially if you take uh, like a shuttle bus uh, the specifically that goes to the circuit from, from downtown Barcelona, it just basically drops you about a 10-minute walk from the, the the main entrance there so a perfect uh, place to go to and uh, watch a race as well so a bit of a shout out to, to anybody that uh, wants to go and look at that one I mean uh, 
It's a 66 lap race. So again, pretty much, I think we had 66 laps last weekend. So 308 kilometers. It's a fairly long lap. It's a 4.67 kilometers. And again, it's uh, we're, we're going to see the exact same tire compounds, the C1, C2, and C3, which are the hardest compounds that uh, Pirelli have in their range, which is exactly what we saw last weekend. And, you know, just the way that all these things um, keep lining up, just it, it's just I, I just don't see, based on what I saw last weekend, why all of a sudden this would be more favorable to Red Bull than it would be to to, to Mercedes. So, you know, I, I hope to be uh, presently su- surprised, but I'm not really I'm not really leaning that way just yet. Let's put it that way. One of the storylines I'm really eager to watch this weekend, and it's something that I've I found really fascinating through the first couple of races, is how Sergio Perez has adapted to that Red Bull. And I think yeah. there's obviously been a little bit of criticism about the fact that he hasn't performed better. But I mean, ultimately, if you look at the last couple of races, he qualified P2, P4. Um, he ultimately finished a race in P5, despite despite starting from the pit lane. But he made some comments a couple of days ago about how challenging it's been to adapt to this car. And I think that lends a little bit of credence to some of the comments that we've heard in the past from Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon about how unique that car is. And it kind of sent me spiraling down about how could this car be different? In what way is it different? Is it the suspension setup? Is it the linkages? Is it the aerodynamics? Is it the balance of the drivetrain front to rear? Like, Like what makes this car so unique? But I thought it was interesting that Perez made kind of the same observation that, yeah, this is a really unique car, but I'm really fascinated to see how quickly he can adapt. And I think ultimately, his first couple of performances have been pretty strong and they haven't been perfect and he's made some mistakes but I think that's what I'm going to be most fascinated to watch this weekend because I think ultimately if Red Bull wants to compete for a constructor's title I think Sergio is going to be the person that makes that happen ultimately because I think Bottas is the one that could potentially lose it for Mercedes and I think Perez is the one that could win it for Red Bull and I think that's the storyline that I'm going to be watching most closely. Yeah I mean uh, obviously like you said he's he stumbled a couple of uh, times in the opening couple of races last weekend in Portugal I think was his best race so far for Red Bull and I think uh, that's more uh, obviously in the direction that they need him to go in I mean uh, ideally he would have been uh, there a little bit more in touch to maybe run a little bit of uh, interference between Max and the Mercedes car but I, I mean I think it's uh, it's good because he got the points that uh, he needed and slowly but surely he's uh, settling in I mean uh, he's he's pretty much come out and say that uh, you know he can't throw the car around the way that uh, he would like to uh, compared to you know excuse me the uh the the uh the the racing point or the force india that he's been used to in the past so you know there there is that but he's certainly going in the the right uh, direction but apart from perez the other driver that i'm going to be uh, looking at and focusing on this uh this weekend or actually both of them is both of the McLaren drivers. I mean, Lando, he's uh, really living up to what I was uh, hoping to see from him when he came into Formula One a couple of years ago. I think he's looked really good, not just last year, but through the first uh, three races of this year. So I'm going to be watching to see where where you know where Lando ends up uh, not just in qualifying but in the race himself or itself I think uh, he's really uh, doing a good job for another young driver and the other one is uh, Danny Ricardo I mean we've been talking a lot about uh, Sergio Perez and some of the the, the little missteps and mistakes that he's had uh, in the first couple of races uh, with Red Bull but Ricardo has uh, struggled uh, I'd say even more so at uh, at McLaren he just uh, I mean he didn't make it out of Q1 last weekend in Portugal I mean we know that they've got a good car um but uh, it really hasn't started off for Danny Rick is I think obviously as excuse me as good as he would have wanted it at McLaren so he's another one I'm gonna have my eyes on absolutely I agree with uh with all of your uh your points 
Well, that's awesome. And I think, uh, well... Nope, nope, nope. Before you you, cut this off and we get away without a MotoGP corner, we have have a MotoGP corner There you go. Okay, go and take it away. And this podcast is still your house, so I should ask permission. Can you proceed with the MotoGP You you don't need to ask permission anymore. Feel free. (laughs) You just have to remind me. I've left the fridge open. I don't lock the front door. My clothes are all over the, uh, the living room of this podcast. I'm now firmly entrenched in the culture of this show. MotoGP corner update. So we are currently four races in to the 2021 MotoGP calendar. It's a 19 race calendar. One of the interesting points that I shared with Mark a couple of days ago is to give some illustration of how Spanish centric this sport is of the 19 races this year, four are in Spain. And that's not unusual. It's not COVID specific. It's just typically how the calendar is built that almost a quarter of the calendar is based out of the country of Spain. Now, typically Spanish driver or riders also dominate the championship to give a little bit of context and a little bit of update so far in the team standing so far monster energy yamaha MotoGP in their first full season without valentino rossi at the helm in almost a decade is leading the championship they have 114 points followed by ducati suzuki pramac repsol patronus yamaha aprilia red bull lcr Espanzorama Racing, which I can't pronounce, which is super embarrassing. And then technically, <laughs> from a constructor's championship perspective, and this is the unique thing about MotoGP is as much as it's structured like Formula One in the sense that, hey, you have individual teams, you have independent teams, you have factory teams, you have different championships. So you have the riders championship, like just like you would in Formula One, you have a constructor's championship and you have a team championship. The constructor standings right now are being led by Yamaha, largely fueled by that factory monster energy team. Yamaha has 91 points, Ducati has 85 and Suzuki is 53. And I think the storyline that's probably of interest to most folks is Mark Marquez. So Mark Marquez suffered a brutal crash last year. He had some broken bones. He came back too early. He aggravated the injury and he missed the entire season. He also missed the first two races of this season. And again, when you talk about crashes in Formula in MotoGP, these are crashes from which the drivers themselves absorb a lot of the impact. So the drivers, the riders absorb a lot of the impact. So Mark Marquez has now been back for two full races. He has finished both races and he has finished in the points, but he has not been anywhere near a podium. And as a result, the Repsol Honda team that he has steered to multiple championships over the last decade is really struggling this year. But we hope to see that he's going to be able to continue. The next race is in France, followed by Italy. So just a little bit of an update right now. The championship is currently being led by the Monster Energy team. Uh, The drivers or the riders championship is being led by a Ducati driver and Suzuki's having a relatively strong year as well. So that's our MotoGP update for this week. Back to you. You know what? Uh, I, I, I'm completely cool with the fact that uh, you're comfortable here in, in the Scuderia F1 house. You know, I, I, I don't mind that you open the fridge and help yourself to all the food. I don't mind that you put your feet up on the table, but could you at least put some pants on? I mean, you gotta- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Okay, well, we're going to have to talk That's about where that I draw later. That's the line. <laughs> Fair enough. Pants are for suckers. Anyways, guys, uh, we're going to leave it there. We're, we're going to shut it down. Uh, we've got uh, the race coming up on Sunday, so that means we'll be back on Sunday. Sunday night to, to, to break it down and go over the race that was. And until then, thank you very much for downloading and listening to the show. If you want to get in touch, by also uh, by all means do so. You can uh, send us a tweet at ScuderiaF1Pod or email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it on behalf of myself and my co-host, Mark Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again very, very soon. Bye for now. <laughs>